Genesis chapter 1 tonight, Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we're going to take a look at uh, Christian science tonight. Um, so Genesis chapter 1, we're going to start by reading um, actually Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And then we're going to flip over and read the first seven verses of Genesis chapter 3. So if you guys would stand with me as we pay honor to the reading of God's word tonight. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. We'll start there and then we'll make our way over to Genesis 3. This is the word of the Lord. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And let's flip over to Genesis chapter 3, and we'll read the first seven verses. Again, this is the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig trees or fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And this is the word of the Lord, and we praise him for keeping it for us. You may be seated, and we'll pray together. Father, we come to you tonight, and we want to be crystal clear. That we believe that your word is the only thing that will ever change anyone's life. We also know that there are people in the world that we live in that believe lies. What's worse than that is that there are people in this world that propagate lies about what it means to experience eternal life with you or in some metaphysical sense. So tonight we turn our attention to people who are not like us, people who are not the same as us or even a branch of us or similar to what we believe, but believe something completely different from what we believe. And Father, I pray that you'd help me to be kind, but bold with the truth. Father, we also think tonight of our friends around the city who are getting up and, and doing very similar things, preaching your word, encouraging others uh, to growth in godliness. Think of our friends at Cherry Street and the college ministry there under the direction of Kevin Adams. Pray that you would help them to blossom and grow. Also think of our friends at Second Baptist, Father, and the ministry and work that they're doing. And we ask that you would enlarge it and enrich it and that they may uh, be able to reach more people for the cause of Christ. So be with us now as we turn our attention to your word. Help me as I preach to be faithful to what your word has to say, to point out error. Help me to be a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth tonight. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. 
Christian science is where we're going to turn our attention to this week. And Christian science is often confused. I've had multiple people who, when I told them that tonight we were covering Christian science, were like, wait, isn't that Scientology? No, this is a distinct cult from Scientology. Scientology we'll talk about next week. Um, But for the sake of our time together this evening, we'll be looking at Christian science, which Al Mohler once famously quipped when referencing one of his teachers in seminary that Christian science, oddly enough, is neither Christian nor science. And I don't say that to elicit a laugh or take a cheap shot and do it because we're, we're moving towards different cults that, I mean, quite honestly, just are offensive to people who truly know the scriptures. You may wonder, where does Christian science come from? I don't know anything about Christian science. I really did think when he said Christian science, we're going to talk about Scientology. So what are we talking about tonight? Well, Christian science is a cult that was started by Mary Baker Eddy in New Hampshire in 1821. Uh, Mary Baker Eddy was raised by her parents as a Congregationalist, which is a stripe of evangelical. And she joined the Congregational Church as a teenager, though she did not like the teachings on predestination or hell. Seems to be a common recurring theme throughout our cult series don't like what God has to say about salvation and don't like what God has to say about hell. Well, as an adult, Mary Baker Eddy uh, developed clairvoyant powers and actually dabbled in the occult and spiritualism. She would fall into trances and people sought advice from her while she was in these kind of trances or states. Eddy would sometimes hear mysterious uh, rappings at night and she saw spirits. Um, Really just honestly, demonic activity that is taking place there. And um, she received messages in writing from the dead, supposedly. Well, in 1875, she published her book, Science and Health with a Key to the Scriptures. And in this book, you know, Christian science is really a mind science, and we'll kind of unpack what that means here in a minute. But what she basically set forth is these metaphysical principles that she learned from other science, mind science teachers, and she spoke of her ideas as new revelation, even though it was kind of derived revelation. In fact, there's controversy that explodes because the, base, the book is basically plagiarized from other mind science teachers, but she claimed that this is her revelation. Well, before she died, she arranged for a board of directors to kind of operate inside of the Christian uh, scientists world, and um, they're, basically that board of directors has absolute authority over Christian science, just like she did, and there's really no leadership structure other than that board, and this denomination is really, or not really denomination, this cult has really, honestly, um, shrunk over the last few years, but just like anything else, all a cult needs is fertile ground to explode again. And unfortunately, the world in which we live in that is kind of after New Age philosophies, very high on spiritualism, very high on the idea of being spiritual, that's very much the culture in which we live in, 
Christian science has once again fertile ground to explode. And it wouldn't be surprising if it did explode again. Because basically when we talk about mind science, it's basically mind over matter, willpower type thinking that is going to drive it. So as we turn and look at what Christian science believes, I want to be clear tonight. Um, I've tried to be charitable up to this point. But as we begin to start to engage with cults that start to say even more radical things, I want to press back radically with God's word. I, I don't want us to merely come into these sessions together and learn what other cults believe. What I'm trying to do is give you um, a biblical response, give you passages that you can push back so that when you encounter someone who's like, I'm a Christian scientist, you can uh, begin to engage with them and talk with them and point them to scriptures that hopefully will press them to think about why they believe what they believe. So tonight, three areas. We're going to just, I've narrowed it down to three because I don't know how to adequately cover three in 30 minutes. And so to cover more than three in 30 minutes would be, we're never eating pasta together. So um, that would be bad. So we're going to start with the area of man. That's why we read Genesis 1, 26 and 27 and 3, 1 through 7, because here's what Christian scientists believe about man. Um, They basically believe that man himself is part of the divine or that man inherently, because he is an outgrowth of God, is divine. Man does not have a separate existence apart from God. And this is what they would say, just as a drop of water is one with the ocean, so every human being is one in nature with the divine mind. They believe that you and I are divine. And I just want to say to you tonight, that's absolutely ridiculous. The Bible never teaches, Scripture never teaches that man is divine. In fact, I would argue that spending 10 minutes in this world would be ample enough time for you to figure out that man is not divine. Furthermore, anyone that believes that man is divine should have to, for the next week, live in a car in our city and drive around to figure out that man is not divine. 15 minutes on the expressway in any major city gives clear evidence to the fact that man is not divine. But even worse than that, 15 minutes talking to even our best friend proves that man is not divine. And we're not ultimately here to talk about the driving habits of people in Springfield or how wonderful your best friend or, I don't know that hopefully you don't think your best friend is a terrible person, but the Bible certainly does. Now, see, here's the problem, right? They say man's divine. Well, what would possibly lead someone to think that man is divine? Well, it's the first passage that we read. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says that God has created man in his image. Now, if we misread the biblical text, we're tempted to think that maybe Christian scientists are right. And maybe I am God. Again, you're wrong because Created in the image of God does not mean he created you as a God. 
but rather created you as an image bearer. And your original intention as a human being was you were created to reflect the glory of God. To think of yourself as a mirror, if you will, that ultimately reflects an image, an image of what God is and who he's created you to be. But there's one major problem with that, and that's Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Humans mar that image. How do they mar that image? Through sin. We'll go back to Genesis chapter 3. The serpent comes, and he's more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God has made. And he says to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And I just want to stop here. Every great pastor and every great professor is looking for an awesome rabbit trail. And here's one right at the beginning for us to go ahead and snatch. Part of the problem that inherently comes from any cult or any world religion that questions the sufficiency of God's word and Christ begins with this question. Does God really mean what he says? Did God really say, were you sure you were listening clearly? Are you sure that he got it right? And here's a surefire sign that human beings left to their own devices, never get this answer correct. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. This is the first evidence of the game telephone. The serpent says, did God really say this? And Eve's response is, God said we can't eat it, and we can't touch it. God never said anything about their ability to touch it. He said, if you eat of this, you will surely die. Now, a natural implication of that is, why would you touch it unless you're going to eat it? But already Eve is adding to what God has said. And what takes place next ushers in what we commonly refer to as the fall of humanity. The serpent says in verse 4, you will not surely die for God knows that in the day that you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil again this is what cults always promise Mormonism Jehovah's Witness and now Christian science all offer the world at large this idea that they are truly God because what is our deepest longing and our deepest desire is to be equal with God this is what's unfortunate about Adam and Eve this is what leads them to being tripped up. They want to be equal with God. They want to experience what it means to be God. That's what we still struggle with. We as Christians still struggle with who's going to be the Lord of our lives. Who's going to call the shots in how we live. Who's going to be the one who says what goes and what doesn't go. And we're constantly wrestling to be in control. This is what Christian science promises. That you actually are a God. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they, were, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. 
Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? As if he didn't know. Adam says, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate it. Of course, what's our natural reaction to our own sinfulness? We're going to blame shift. And since Adam didn't have anyone else to throw under the bus, he throws the one who just a chapter earlier, he says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I was pumped about her showing up. Now it's your fault. It's her fault. You gave her to me. This is your fault and her fault. You know whose fault it's not? It's not mine. That's what Adam is basically saying. So in the, the three chapters, what we learn about the human condition is left to our own devices. We'll always choose to sin. When given the opportunity, we'll choose to sin. You say, why do you say that that way? Because Christians for centuries almost millennia, have said, if you would just leave, if they would just left me in the garden, right? This is what every guy says. If you just left me in the garden, like, all of womankind would be cursed, but man would be okay, because I'd be like, hey, get out of here. Which just propagates two lies. One, that any man in the presence of a naked woman would be able to control himself. And two that you think that in a moment you would be able to leave. This is the first illustration we ever have in all of Scripture where a man who has been charged to lead the family abandons that call. Adam should have been the one saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Talking snake, not good. Whoa. Number two, God never said anything about touching it. He just said we couldn't eat it. And number three, get out of here. Get out of here. We're not created to be God. We're created to reflect his glory. So when Christian scientists or anyone else come around and they're like, well, you have God in you. That is a gross misinterpretation of Genesis chapter 1. You were created to reflect God's glory. And the only way that you can, this side of Genesis 3, is if somebody fixes the broken mirror. Because broken mirrors don't fix themselves. They can't. It's impossible. So number two, we look at man. And this inherently has to lead to what we believe about sin. So flip over in your Bibles to to Romans chapter 3. Start in the Old Testament, go to the New Testament. We're going to hang out there for the rest of the night. As you're flipping there, what I'm hoping to show you over the course of this series on cults is that you have to be well-versed in your Bible because those who have believed in, bought into a cult, 
know why they believe what they believe. And it's not enough for us to just be like, oh, well, I know this, and that's just weird. That's just weird. It's not going to cut it in any conversation with someone who legitimately believes that they know the way to eternal, happy life. So what do Christian scientists believe about sin? Well, since God is good and man is part of the divine, Christian scientists believe that man does not sin. Christian scientists hold that sin, evil, sickness, death are just illusions that can be conquered by denying them. Evil, sickness, and death are nothing but states of false belief. Nothing non-spiritual can can exist except in one's mind or thoughts. Since matter does not truly exist, neither can sickness, pain, or death. This is what they believe. Direct quote. The cause of all so-called disease is mental, a mortal fear, a mistaken belief or conviction of the necessity and power of ill health. And this is what leads in the 1990s to there being major outrage over the issue of Christian science because it's discovered that 18 kids die as a result of their parents not taking them to the hospital when they're sick and trying to use mental willpower to save their kids. In the, in the early 90s, this explodes and there's controversy. People are charged with manslaughter, child endangerment, child neglect over this issue. So we're not just playing fast and loose with what we believe about things mentally. We're talking about physically, too. you got a fever of 104.7. It's just a mental problem. We laugh while people die. You got the flu? Get over it. A little mental willpower will fix it. We go, this is crazy. If it's crazy, Romans chapter 1 tells us that man will will go to the nth degree to suppress the truth about God. He will come up with any number of concoctions to say, no God. So what do we believe about sin? Well, Romans chapter 3, we'll read verses 21 through 25. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed that demonstrated the present time His righteousness that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You have no idea how hard it is not to want to pull all of this apart for you tonight. But Lord willing, in the spring, hopefully we'll start a series walking through the book of Romans. And we'll get to do that. Just pray for me as I try and think through what we will do next. But I think this spring we're going to go through Romans and we'll get to pull this apart in detail. Because there's a lot here. But the key is this, where we want to take Christian scientists to, is, look, every human being has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. We all fall short. We all don't measure up. We all are broken mirrors who don't reflect properly who 
God is. That's what the scriptures claim about us. All people sin and all people fall short of the glory of God. I just want to say this and reiterate this. You say, David, we all know this. I, I, I don't necessarily agree with that statement. I don't think we all know it because if we all did, we all live like it. and We'd all preach and proclaim it the way that we should. But without some way to be saved from our sin, there's no way to fix the greatest problem in our lives. This is at the heart of the gospel. And one of the strongest areas of disagreement that we have with Christian scientists is that there's no such thing as sin. There very much is a real and present sin nature that exists in all of humanity that damns them to hell. Without someone to rescue them, humanity will spend eternity separated from God forever in a place of eternal conscious torment. It is real. It does exist. Contrary to what Rob Bell and other universalists have said, hell is a real place and it does exist. So what's the solution then? Well, we've got to turn to our third area, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 15. I hope you're, you're seeing what I'm trying to do in this. I'm trying to engage with people where they are, while at the same time contradicting where they are and taking them to something greater. This is what needs to happen when we think about engaging with people who hold to false theology and false religion. It's not enough just to call their stuff wrong. You've got to engage with them, and along the way, we're taking them to the different places and showing them this is what's different this is what we believe, and this is how it's supremely better. So here's what Christian scientists believe about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Mary Baker Eddy's view, there was no sacrifice on Calvary. Because death is ultimately an illusion, Jesus did not and could not truly die on the cross. This is heinous. since there's no such thing as death, there could never be such thing as a literal resurrection from the dead. Eddie writes, his disciples believed Jesus to be dead while he was hiding in the sepulcher, whereas he was alive, demonstrating within the narrow tomb the power of, the, of spirit to overrule mortal material sense. problem with cults is that they take very deep sentences like the one that I just read and present them as if they're true. And because they sound deep, we're in awe of them. Because we want to consider ourselves to be deep thinkers, we hear what was just said and go, maybe. Outside of an unregenerate mind, we'll go, that's deep. I like deep thinking. These people are smart. They're taking me deep. I want to go deep. I just want to tell us as Christians, Christians, we think robustly about what it means to follow Christ. Making up a bunch of mumbo jumbo to sound deep is not helpful to anyone. And Christian, you better be careful. Because I'll hear Christians, they'll like wax eloquently about what it means to follow Christ. 
and they string together $8 words in an attempt to seem really spiritual. We got to be careful that we don't buy into the culture's lie that to be deep is to be more spiritual. Christ will take us deep into his word. We will become more spiritual, but that will not make us esoteric or eloquent or cutting edge and just, oh man, like I just came through on that. Wow. Like I wish it could be that deep. Beware. That's why the Apostle Paul, I liked it. He goes to Corinth. Corinth is a town that's incredibly wealthy, incredibly sinful and pagan goes to the Corinthian church, writes this letter. The Corinthians, if Paul were to show up, would not have him preached in his church because Paul's kind of old. He's not young and cutting edge. More of a coat and a tie man, not a ripped jeans and button down man. He's got some gray hair, a little salt and pepper. Paul shows up and the Corinthians would be like, we don't. We want the eloquent guy. Where's the great communicator? Where's the guy that says the funny stuff and turns a phrase and makes me feel great about Jesus? We want that guy. Bring us that guy. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, and by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then Paul just lights these suckers up. These rich, snobby, selfish, sexually explicit congregation. And he says this. Can we just pause here for a second and say, isn't that us? We look at Corinth, we're like, those guys are bad. We have a tendency to put down the audience to who is being spoken to as if we aren't those people. I'm not Corinth. He says, for I delivered to you of first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and after that was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, by the apostles. Then last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. Paul says this. You want to know what the heart of what it means to be a Christian is? We confess these things. That Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again. He didn't swoon. He didn't fall over. He didn't fake it till he made it. He didn't trick us. He's not hanging out in the tomb going, I'll wait three days and I'll pop back up. I put somebody else. It was a dummy up there. There's no stunt doubles involved. Christ died, buried, and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And then he was seen by Cephas and was seen by a bunch of other eyewitnesses. Beloved, make no mistake, tonight one of the key components and the key areas, in fact the most essential thing that you can believe 
is what you believe about the empty tomb. You believe it's an empty tomb because Jesus is some sort of metaphysical, weird sort of mental trick, went into the tomb, then kind of snuck out a back door and was like, boom, I'm a ri- I've risen. The tomb is empty, to quote Rebecca McLaughlin, whether you like it or not. It's a settled fact of history. The question is, does it actually change your life? Or is it just there? Does your life look any different as a result of Christ not being in the tomb? Or does it look eerily similar to those around you? That's a question we have to wrestle with, even as Christians. You can look at Christian science and go, boo, that's bad, that's wrong. But the, the question ultimately becomes this. Yeah, it's wrong to believe that, but it's equally wrong at some level to claim to believe that the tomb is empty and yet not live like it. To confess it's empty but live like it never happened. To be a card-carrying Baptist or a church member that says, I affirm the empty tomb, but to watch you live is like he's still there. You may say, David, tonight you were a little bit more punchy than you've been. Yeah, call it conviction, call it reading other things. Call it, I was reminded again today that to know that someone is in complete and utter error, to call them to repentance and faith in Christ is the most loving thing I can do. Not as a jerk, not arrogantly, as if I've got it all together, right? Look what that gets people into trouble, Genesis 3. We want to be like God. We got pride. I should be like God. But to humbly say, like, friend, beloved, like, you got to think about the choices that you're making because the, what you worship this side of heaven will determine where you spend the other side of heaven. I don't often think in those terms. Eh, okay, just let them believe what they want to believe. What you believe this side of heaven determines where you'll spend the other side. Let's pray together.